Thank you, worship team, and good morning to each of you. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Ezra, again, Ezra, chapter 3. That would be page 375 if you're using the, the Bibles that we provide. Whenever you get into a vehicle, you have a destination, and if you have a destination, you have a reason for where you want to go. When you're going somewhere, you have a reason why you're going. You might be going shopping, you might be going to work, you might be going to a, a church softball game, it might be any number of things. You have a destination, you have a reason. As we pick up our study in Ezra chapter 3, 50,000 Jews have just traveled to a new destination. They have traveled from Persia, formerly known as Babylon. They have traveled some four months and some 900 miles to go back to Jerusalem, their homeland. But it had been 50 to 70 years, depending on which of the three deportations these particular Jews might have been a part of, or their parents or grandparents. They had a destination geographically, so they had a reason for doing that. The reason they went was to worship. The reason they went was to worship. Just a little review, chapter 1, verse 1 tells us that God had stirred in the heart of their king Cyrus of Persia. And he made this declaration, you see in the second verse, the Lord God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Incredible, coming from a foreign pagan king, you guys should go build that temple. So in verse 3, he gives them permission. In fact, he says, go do it. Verse 4, he says, and I'll make sure people give you money so you can afford to go do it. In verse 5, again, God stirs. Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and Levites, everyone whose heart God had stirred or moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. And indeed, people did give them money. So they went to do what? To build the house of God in Jerusalem. Chapter 2 contains a list of all the people, or at least families, that went. And so as we come to our passage, we find they have arrived. And, and a little preview, what we see in chapter 3 is, after they arrived, one of the first things they did was to rebuild the altar. They were going to rebuild the temple, but they first rebuilt the altar and worshipped. Then they laid just the foundations of the temple and they worshipped. Their priority was worship. I think the question I'd like us to think through today as we study through this passage is, where is worship as a priority in our lives? Could that be what we're missing as we wonder, you know, what is the meaning of this? What's the purpose of this? How does this... Do we have a destination with the reason? Is worship our priority? Let's pick up the story by actually reading chapter 2, verse 70, and then into chapter 3. The priests, the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants settled in their own towns along with some of the other people, and the rest of the Israelites settled in their towns. So when they get to Jerusalem... 
Some dispersed into the surrounding villages because they knew where they were from. Only a, probably a small percentage of them actually had ever been there because of the decades that had passed. For many, this was new territory, but it wasn't so long that they couldn't figure out where they were from. And so they go back to their villages. Verse 1 of chapter 3. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, the people assembled as one man in Jerusalem. So worship was their priority. That's what they were headed towards. But there was a practical first step that they they had to take care of. They had to have places to live. There had to be uh, something to eat, a place to sleep, a place to, to be, and to begin to settle in the last couple of studies, we have uh, followed kind of this progress of how Cyrus made the decree, but then you had families individually and individuals who had to decide, are we going or are we staying? And so it was these families that had decided to go, and then God had given them safety, and they had gotten the, uh, the provisions they needed, the livestock, the money that they needed was given to them, and they arrived But when they arrived at Jerusalem, they arrived at a city that was still damaged by fire, by the aggression of the Babylonians, and now, of course, by neglect. It was surrounded by rows of rubble that had once been walls. There were abandoned houses, businesses. It was a virtual ghost town except for the remaining poorer Jews that the Babylonians had left there. The same story was true if you went to the surrounding villages. A smaller population left to tend the vineyards and raise some basic crops. But now suddenly there is a burst of population. 50,000 people have returned. And so abandoned homes are reclaimed You've got to have a place to live and sleep and eat and cobwebs have to go and floors have to be swept and furniture unloaded, vessels found or that which you brought along, corrals constructed to keep the animals that you brought with you, repairs to make, gardens to plant, fields to plow. They had just a little time to settle. But very soon, verse 1 says, in the seventh month, They assembled as one man in Jerusalem. They weren't done settling. They had just kind of arrived. But you can only imagine, with all the the work there was to do, the list of projects must have been endless of the repairs and the gardens and the fields. But they assembled as one man because, as we'll find in verse 2, at Jeshua, the high priest, and Zerubbabel, the leader, said, this is what we came to do. The seventh month tells us that what they gathered for, and we'll find that to be true in verse 4, they gathered for the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles was one of three major feasts of the people of Israel that had been commanded and described in the Old Testament. And because they gathered in the seventh month, we can assume that they'd only been there a couple of months because I can't imagine these people who have come for the purpose of worship letting any of the other two Festivals pass without worshiping. Feast of the Passover was in what we would call our uh, April, May, April, uh, yeah, March, April, rather. Then the Feast of Pentecost, 50 days later, would have been the month of May. 
Feast of Tabernacles, the seventh month, is actually our kind of between our September, October. So we can assume that they'd only been in the area several months because they didn't celebrate Passover, they didn't celebrate Pentecost, but now after a couple of months they must be ready to gather. Verse 2, Then Jeshua, son of Jozadak, and his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and his associates, began to build the altar of God to sacrifice burnt offerings on it in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. So the, the community leader... The project leader, Zerubbabel, and the high priest, Jeshua, together are, uh, are a wonderful combination of church and state. And they said, we are, going, we are here to worship and we will begin this project. It was the most important project. It's what they had come to do. They had come to reestablish worship. When God stirred in their hearts in Persia, it was to reestablish worship back in Jerusalem where the temple was, where God would meet with them. And the quickest way to reestablish worship in the absence of a temple was to at least construct the altar. And so they did that, having seen the process of God moving in their king, the process of God moving in their family, and the process of God protecting them on their way. And so whatever projects there were in their towns to finish their, their garden and their field and the re- repairs would have to wait because it says as one man they came together it, and they all met. So no one was exempt. No one could stay back and say, you know, this is a really good day for hoeing. This is a really good day to fix that roof. Because, no, it was time to worship. They were spread across uh, what is called Judea in general by the time of the New Testament. Because these are the southern two tribes, Benjamin and Judah, and some Levites, who had returned and so the borders were, you know, within 30 to maybe 50 miles, if you go clear to the Mediterranean Sea. So where they had settled was going to be at somewhere 10, 20, 30, maybe 45 miles to get to Jerusalem. But they come together. This was going to happen because worship was their purpose. Worship was their priority. They knew very well that sin had halted that worship. The sins of their fathers, grandfathers, and ancestors had continued really generations and God had been so patient sending prophet after prophet but finally the cup was full and judgment came as God had promised and the Babylonians had destroyed their city and their town and their temple. Sin stops worship. Worship stops sin. You cannot sin and worship. You cannot worship and sin because if your heart is drawn towards the greatness of God in gratitude, at least for that moment, you are not sinning. You are focused on holy, holy, holy. And so it was the ultimate priority that if sin had halted their worship, that they must come to worship and address that sin. So it's a repentant and single-hearted group that makes their way to Jerusalem to give thanks, to offer burnt offerings. Is worship our priority? Can, can you see why it should be? You see how vital worship is to our holiness? 
to focus on His. The other evening, uh, Priscilla and I were fellowshipping with a couple of other uh, families, newer families to the church, and we were kind of just getting acquainted by going around the circle and sharing our spiritual stories. And uh, when Priscilla was talking a little about her background, she made mention to one of the family stories about when uh, her, her parents were farmers, as were mine, but uh, one, one night there was a bad hailstorm. And so before breakfast, Dad went out to look at the fields, and then he came in for breakfast. Uh, you have to understand, her mom and dad are very quiet people. Came in for breakfast, and mom says, Well? Dad says, It's a total loss. They sit down and pray and have breakfast, and he goes out to work, and that was about it. There was no freaking out about a lost harvest. Because somewhere in their story, spiritually, they had become worshipers. Worshipers trust God. In her home, there was Bible reading or some verse cards read each morning in prayer time with the children. Every Sunday, they would gather with other, mostly farmers, at church who also were going through the same weather, the same challenges, and needing to trust the same God. Priscilla and I had the privilege of growing up, both of us, in homes where our parents never decided to go to church. It was never a decision to go to church. It was an assumption. And if it was not uh, you know, true sickness or a rare vacation trip, nothing got in the way. The cows would get milked or the chores done, but other than that, the tractors were silent and there were no projects. There was nothing that preempted it. I do not want to hold them up as faultless. We both know better. Their priority, however, was faultless. And it developed a trust in God. Where is worship in our priority? Personal? And corporate. Why is it that we struggle to make worship a priority? I would, I would say it's an emphasis on self, but not even in the, maybe the ways you're thinking. I think one of the reasons we struggle to worship is because we understand how imperfect our worship is. Who among us hasn't been discouraged with personal worship? Anybody here dare to raise your hand and say, I probably pray too much? <laughs> probably not. We all struggle with prayer. Who, who of us feels like we really are devoted to the Word of God like we should? We're not. Who of us has never been distracted as you're in the Word of God? Or suddenly found yourself looking at Instagram or Facebook instead of what you came to do and why you sat down with your coffee? We struggle and so we feel that imperfection. What's the use? I'm just no good at personal worship. The same thing can happen as we think about corporate worship. This is a very imperfect thing we do. You can get together with people, some of whom you hardly like. Some of whom you've struggled with and you'd hope come to maybe even a second, a different service than you. We're a bunch of imperfect people and, and we're gonna, we know we're going to get distracted and there'll be things in the service we don't like and then if you go to the classes, you know, then there's things and discussions and it's hard. And you know. I'm just not even sure I want to make the effort. 
And, and I think this focus on uh, how good we are at something can distract us from it. Take along with that the baggage we carry of our own guilt or shame or insecurities and feeling so unworthy and we can abandon worship. Do you, do you think these 50,000 people who came from Persia had a perfect trip? I mean, think about this. All that list of families traveling, walking, dusty, dirty, bad accommodations, kids getting in arguments. You don't think there was some rough edges to that trip? Imagine walking with that many people for that long. But what drove them was their purpose. And in fact, the messier we are, the more desperately we need worship because there is only one perfection in our life. And we were just singing to him. Holy, 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 perfect in power, perfect in purity, perfect in every way. The reason we need to worship is because it's the only way our lives touch perfection. Everything else is a mess. Everything else is broken. But when we worship, we approach someone who is perfect. It wasn't easy. It'll always take commitment. It says in verse 3, Despite their fear of peoples around them, they built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both morning and evening sacrifices. In spite of their fear, we will meet these enemies more in future studies. Some may have been Jews who, having been left there, kind of had taken over and they could have been viewed as intruders. Probably more it was a mixed breed. Jews having married with non-Jews. And they became enemies. Became a problem. But in spite of fearing, of, of sensing that tension, at the very start, they built the altar. So they build the altar. Then, verse 4, in accordance with what is written, they celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles with the required number of burnt offerings prescribed for each day. After that, they presented the regular burnt offerings, the new moon sacrifices, and the sacrifices for all the appointed sacred feasts of the Lord, as well as those brought as freewill offerings to the Lord. On the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, though the foundation of the Lord's temple had not yet been laid. Yes, we came to build a temple, but we really came to worship, so... Let's start that as soon as possible. And they began to worship. The temple around them, if you picture them having just built an altar in the right spot, but if you do that 360 view, what you're looking at is, is a mess. Houses in disrepair and vacated, businesses empty. You're looking at uh, the rubble of the temple. It's not a, a pretty sight at all. And so there's a beautiful irony in that they came to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles because the Feast of Tabernacles is that which God prescribed for them in which he says, I want you to remember your deliverance from Egypt. So do you know how you lived when you came out of Egypt? In temporary dwellings for 40 years, right? 
And so to, do, to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, the word tabernacles means booths, and the booths were the little things, little temporary dwellings, God said, Leviticus 23, 42. You were to build these little temporary shelters and live in them for seven days, just to realize that you first experienced my deliverance, but lived in these very subpar accommodations. And yet you worshipped me for delivering you. Isn't that a beautiful irony that they would worship when the view was not so nice? God does not need beautiful buildings for us to worship. When uh, I first came to Open Door Bible Church, we were worshiping, as a few of you remember, in the basement of the Masonic Temple on Grand Avenue, rented hall. And we worshiped. And then we moved up to a liquor store. <laughs> Bought a vacated building and uh, began to renovate and worship there. And then God gave us this beautiful worship center. And now he's given us the beautiful discipleship center. But it really doesn't matter. Somewhere today there are people worshiping probably under a tree in a desert looking for shade or under a thatched roof. Because the location is not what matters, we know that. It is the heart of worship that God desires. Leviticus 23, when it describes the uh, Feast of Tabernacles, says it actually begins with the Day of Atonement, that day in which the high priest makes a symbolic sacrifice for the sins of all the people. But it is also then a seven-day celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles in which people would individually bring burnt offerings of many kinds that are described here in these verses that we just read. Anytime you have a burnt offering, you're burning animals who you killed, so the emphasis is on sin. It's a sobering thing. To kill an animal that was representing your sinfulness before God, and yet the Feast of Tabernacles became known as really the most joyous of all the major feasts. So how does the sobering issue of sacrifice for sin lead to joy? Well, isn't that the point? It's a picture of the grace of God. And so what you are celebrating at the Feast of Tabernacles is God has forgiven you. It was sin that had halted their worship. But it was grace that had brought them back. If you struggle to worship, and we all do, a great place to start is to worship him for his grace. You'll always find something there. If you celebrate his grace, you'll always find reason to worship. And so if shame and guilt seem to somehow be keeping you from worship, just realize that shame and guilt are the reason you worship. To celebrate what God... If, if shame and guilt are keeping you from worship, let me suggest that... Um, one of two things is happening. One is you're just failing to understand the grace of God. If shame and guilt are keeping you from worship, then you are focused on yourself and on your, on your past. We do not focus on the past. We appreciate that God has forgiven the past. Guilt is our past condition. Forgiveness is our present position. And that is cause to worship. Oh, but I still sin. 
Yes. And I still go to car washes in the winter. Though I know they're going to get dirty again. I run them through because there's all that salt that Wisconsin gives us. And so I, even do, I get the underbody thing, you know, and it's spraying up here and it's spraying out there. And I can I go out there and, and, and for a moment I have a, have a clean car and I can enjoy a clean car. We can fail to understand God's grace and that can keep us from worship when it should be the reason for worship. There's another reason we might not truly worship, though, because you cannot worship God for His grace unless you acknowledge your sin. So grace is not a cheap thing. Grace is not a light-hearted thing. Grace means that I cannot be defending my sin or excusing my sin. I cannot downplay my sin. But in fact, we must come to worship with an intent to address our sin. While I go to car washes, knowing there will be more car washes to come, there are certain times I do not go to the car wash. I don't take the car through the car wash when it's snowing and slushy and all the streets are brown with that gunk. There's no point, right? Because I know if I go through that car wash, I fully intend that within 50 feet, that car's going to be all messed up again. So I don't go to a car wash then. And you know, we really can't worship when <laughs> we fully intend to sin. Yes, we know there will be other days, but there is something that has to be going on within us that we develop an abhorrence of our own sin to be able to enjoy the grace of God and enjoy worshiping him for that grace worship was the priority it's the first thing they did they built the altar it says even though the foundation of the Lord's temple had not yet been laid but that was the next project verse 7 then they gave money to the masons and carpenters and gave food and drink and oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre so that they would bring cedar logs by sea from Lebanon to Joppa as authorized by Cyrus, king of Persia. They had, they had actually gotten instructions. Make sure you go get the good cedar from the forest of Lebanon. In the second month of the second year after their arrival at the house of God in Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Jeshua, son of Jozadak, and the rest of their brothers, the priests and the Levites, and all who returned from captivity to Jerusalem, began the work appointing Levites 20 years of age and older to supervise the building of the house of the Lord. And verse 9 says that Jeshua and his sons and so forth helped to supervise. A longing for worship had caused them to build the altar first. It's a longing for worship that causes them to then begin the temple project as well. Not just anyone can build a building, so you have to, verse 7, hire the skilled workers. We hired a construction firm to, to, to build our addition, and then uh, they, were, they hired masons and carpenters and plumbers and electricians who knew how to do specific uh, skills and tasks so it could be done right, and then the building is being finished up by our own skilled people who uh, are, are putting their time into making it complete. Cedar logs from Lebanon... Solomon the king had built the previous temple, now demolished, with cedars from Lebanon. First Chronicles 14.1 tells how Hiram, king of Tyre, had sent those down to him for the first temple. Now it's the king of Persia who is telling them to get 
the cedar logs. This took some time. If you notice, there's some time between the worship at the Feast of Tabernacles and the beginning of the project because it takes time to transport lumber from Lebanon down to Jerusalem because the only way you're going to get it there uh, with some expedience is to float it down the shore of the Mediterranean Sea, take it then inland to uh, Jerusalem. But to do that takes money. You've got to have, uh, what they did is they sent form of uh, currency, food, drink, and oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre, so they would bring that down. In addition, they gave the money then to the skilled workers to begin the project. Uh, There has been a money trail all along here. If you think back through chapter 1, when Cyrus said, I'm sending you to build the house of God again, he says, and I want all your neighbors who aren't going to give you silver, gold, livestock, and goods. And then when God stirred the hearts of those who were supposed to go, verse 5, guess what? God also stirred in the hearts of those who gave them the uh, possessions, the silver, the gold, and so forth. In fact, in chapter 2, verse 69, we saw the, the total of the gold and silver. There was a t- almost a ton of gold and, and, and about three tons of silver that came along on this journey. What's interesting in chapter 2, verse 69, is to realize that the neighbors who had given it to them had given it to the people they knew personally, so now it was in their personal possession. So there was a second time in which God had to stir the hearts of these people to give. It wasn't just stirring the hearts of the people in Persia to give to them, but now it was stirring the hearts of those who traveled to now give up what they had been given and give it to the temple treasury for this project, and that's exactly what happened. And that's what was given to them. And then the money is being transferred to those who are going to actually do the work or buy the materials to do it. When did the worship begin? The worship began at the altar. The worship will take place, we will see, when the foundation is laid. But I would like to suggest suggest to you that there was worship all along. Because they worshipped when they gave. Giving is worship. Anytime we give that which we have, of which we have control, and we give it to the purposes of God, so now no longer can it be under our control, no longer can we use it for our selfish purposes, but I've given it to the purposes of God, that is an act of worship. If you'd like to look at that concept from the New Testament perspective, go to 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9 this afternoon, and just read about the process of worship in giving. So they were already giving. Worship is an exchange always between the individual and God. Worship is that which we give God, whether it's praise, whether it's money, whether it's ministry to others. It's always something we give God. See, everything else in life, God gives to us. Spiritual blessings, physical blessings, it's all coming this way, right? Because God is self-sufficient and needs nothing else. What's the only thing you can give God? Worship. And the worship is not the money itself. Because God can say, let there be gold. And there would be gold. That's all he has to do. He made the first gold. Hebrews 11.3 says that the things which are did not come about by things which exist, 
but it was spoken by the word of God. That's how everything came into existence. So God could have just made more money. So why does he ask us to give except that we make it part of our worship? So God had worked in the hearts of those who sent, those who gave, those who went, those who built, because this entire process was a process of worship. And God received the worship. As they began the work in the second month of the second year, this is meaning there is a passage of time. They've, they've celebrated more feasts. But now the materials have gathered. It took some time to get the logs and get everything together and, and hew the, the foundation stones that, with which they would begin. And then it says that it was the work of the Levites and the priests. Specifically, the Levites are going to do the work. Now, the, the Levites are actually a tribe. Had, we had Benjamin and Judah were the two tribes that returned. But then there's the tribe of the Levites. If this is the tribe of the Levites... The priests are a subset of the Levites, but the priests were part of the family uh, line of Aaron, and they would do the actual um, sacrificing, the work within the temple, but the Levites did all the work around the temple, so it was only logical that they would also be the, the managers of the construction. They would supervise, as it says, the building, because they were the ones who were going to have to use it to the specifications of the book of Leviticus. And so this thing is organized, and, and Jeshua oversees it from the perspective of the high priest in charge, and they begin to get the building built. As they lay the foundation, verse 10 tells us, when the builders lay the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments and with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, took their places to praise the Lord as prescribed by David, king of Israel, the worship leader of the past, right? With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, He is good. His love to Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. There are trumpets, cymbals, singing, Praise to the Lord, verse 10. Praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord. God was listening to their music. God was, they weren't doing this to have a great concert. God was listening to their music. We studied recently in our series on the one another's that we are to speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. There is a mutual benefit singing and making melody in their hearts to the Lord, he is the ultimate recipient of that which we sing. So when you sing, God is listening. God is listening to our praise. And he's listening for the heart, not the voice quality, so don't worry about that. What they sing? They sing, He is good, his love to Israel endures forever. It's a, it's a pretty short song. Maybe repetition in music is not a new thing. Probably they sang a lot more than that. Probably they sang a lot of things from the Psalter that day. I don't know. But this one stood out as uh, the, the compiler of Ezra puts it together. God is good. His love to Israel endures forever. They had just come off of 70 years of discipline of God. They had been wrenched their 
parents and grandparents, perhaps more than the few of them there, but wrenched from their, their cities and villages and livelihoods. What they saw all around them was ruin, and they sang what? God is good. His love towards Israel endures forever. You see, discipline was a good thing. If you happen in some public setting to see a, a, a mom or a dad who is uh, a loving, firm, effective discipline uh, discipliner of their child, and you realize that's how it should be. You don't say that's a bad parent just because there happen to be some tears on the child, right? You say, no, that's a good parent. God is good. Even if we've come through times of discipline, God is good. When we worship, we worship God in the long view. If our worship is dependent on the short view, it's going to be pretty sporadic, right? Because in the short view, there can be real crummy stuff happening. In the short view, it might be a really amazing day. But what they said is his love endures forever. They were looking at God's care for Israel in the long view. We don't usually do that. If you greet one another after the service and say, so how are you doing? You really don't want them to tell you the long view. Well, when I was 13, <laughs> that's not what you meant. We're mostly about the short view. But when we worship, and I hope this happens sometimes as you're worshiping. You hear a principle, something about God. Does your mind sometimes go back and go, yep. Then there was this, and then there was this. And that's when worship becomes real. Because you see the faithfulness of God in the long view of your life. He's good. His love to Israel endures Forever. And then the people gave a great shout. Now, I guess that means there wasn't any sermon or teaching afterwards, because usually what we do after music, when they have me come up here and talk. But they didn't have anything like that on the schedule, but their hearts are still filled with what God has done and brought them back, and all the details, and all the safety, and all the provision, and the fact that they can actually lay the stones of the foundation, and their hearts are so full, they don't know what else to do except to just shout. I can just imagine like a, like a stadium full of, of fans who cheer about much lesser things. There is a roar that fills the temple site in all of its plainness and incompleteness and ugliness, really, of the city. There is a roar that erupts as these people praise their God for His goodness and for all that God had done for them. Was it a perfect day? It would seem so. But keep reading. Verse 12, But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. Think of this confusion. 
No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping because the people made so much noise and the sound was heard far away, which introduces the next chapter. But So when you heard this loud sound, you didn't realize that there was two perspectives. It's kind of like, you know, when someone throws a touchdown, the hometown is cheering if it's the hometown team. Those others are going, oh, no. There were detractors, at least, who were bothered by the laying of the foundation. Why were they bothered by it? Why were they disappointed? It was so small. They realized that they saw the footprint of the new temple. It didn't have all the accommodations of Solomon's temple. And I bet you they saw that it didn't have these huge room-sized foundation stones that were so magnificent, but instead all that could be done was a smaller set of foundation stones, some of which actually I understand are still visible in Jerusalem of Zerubbabel's temple. It would never be like it used to be. Artists have suggested that Zerubbabel's temple was just basic and the basic rectangle there would have all the the right size and have the basic elements of the the table of showbread and the the candlestick and the altar of incense and then the holy place to the holy of holies but that was about it compared to Solomon's temple that had these outside courts and these high things and all the adornment and all this and all the big brass lavers it, it didn't have all of that And so we can kind of understand that that percentage of people who had returned who did not, who who could remember seeing the other temple are going, this thing is so disappointing. Often, I will say usually in scripture, age is aligned with wisdom. I mean, Think of King Solomon. If only he had listened to the older advisors. But he ignored the good advice that they gave. Instead, listened to his buddies who were the new officials under young King Rehoboam. Split the kingdom wide open. Rehoboam didn't listen to the older ones. But in this case, what do you think? Did the older people have the right perspective? Let me ask you this. Do you think God was disappointed when they laid the foundations and began to worship? I don't think he was disappointed at all. God was the one who had moved in the heart of Cyrus to say, go rebuild my temple. God was the one who moved in the hearts of the families who went and traveled that big journey and got everybody together and carried their stuff and displaced and left their businesses in Persia. God is the one who had brought them there and provided for them. I think God was rejoicing. Feast of tabernacles, living in booths. God really doesn't care how glorious the accommodations are. I really enjoyed watching the Disciple Center go up. It's been in the minds of our, us as leaders for a lot of years, and I get to be around and, and see it progress. 
I think it's turning out really nice. If you think of the people who are going to be coming in the coming years, they're not probably going to be impressed. It's just, it's nice. It's, it's what you'd expect there to be. It's a building. It has basic functions. And in fact, it doesn't matter if it's the pers- that perspective or if it's my perspective or whatever your perspective is of, of this or that or anything else that, uh, that's a building or a program. Because what God is looking for is the priority of worship. And so those of us who get to be a part of uh, the past and see something develop in the future, the real issue is, did we do it with a desire to worship God? Did we give with a desire to worship God? And as we begin to use any resource that God gives us, is it so that we can glorify God? Or is it, will we revert back to self? Because God is looking for the heart. Same God who commissioned Solomon's temple and was worshipped at that glorious, much larger celebration at the dedication of Solomon's temple was the God who was worshipped at Zerubbabel's laying of the foundation and is the God who is worshipped today as we sang songs with the words provided what are, we learning, what are we learning about the priority of worship? Worship of Israel was obviously different than ours. I'm not a priest. We don't have Levites. We didn't kill any animals this morning. But God has been unchanged. And we worship him for his goodness and that his love endures forever. So, a couple of things. What does worship look like for you? And how do we make it a priority? Is worship a lifestyle for you? The book of Hebrews in the New Testament, the writer is writing to Jews who had made the mistake. They lived, this is after Christ, the churches, church had begun, and some of the Jews said, I'm going back to make sacrifices again. They just couldn't let go of what they used to do. And the writer says, Wait a minute, you are polluting the gospel. That's done. Christ died once for all. The final payment's been made. And so you could say for them there was like this emptiness. Well, if we don't do sacrifices, if we don't do the Old Testament rituals, what do we do to worship? Hebrews 13. Through him, he's just described the sacrifice of Jesus. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. He says, nothing has changed It's just that now we know who it was that accomplished our redemption. Why would you go back and sacrifice animals picturing that which has actually happened? This is no longer a dream. This is a reality. So let's let's praise him for that. How else can we worship? Next verse. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Worship is a lifestyle. When you help someone and you give your Saturday to someone, you have just... Worshipped if that's what you came to do. If you came because, oh, he did something for me, I better do something for him, it's probably not worship. If you give to get your name on a plaque, it's probably not worship. 
if you sign up to do a ministry because people like you if you do that it's probably not worth it but if you do good it can be ministry to others and simultaneously be the worship of God so Ephesians 5.20 says always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ we need to always have an attitude of worship that's what gratitude is complaining cancels worship it's over gratitude restarts worship so always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ because it all comes funnels from from him a couple final questions how do we grow as a worshiper how continuous are my thoughts of praise and gratitude towards God prayer without ceasing always giving thanks you know how frequently in a day do you think God thoughts? Is your impulse as if something good happens? Oh, thank you, Lord. Is your impulse in a need? Oh, Lord, help. Do, do, do you seek wisdom? Is there, is there a, continue, a continuity to a, an attitude of understanding, acknowledging God's presence? How is my commitment to personal worship time going? Because it is my personal worship time that will become... I practice in the rest of the day. That's why I like to start in the morning because I remember my first connection that day. Am I faithful to corporate worship as a true priority? What does it take not to worship with fellow believers? Why is it a decision? How do those decisions get made? Am I faithful? You and God. Does my generosity reflect true gratitude for God's grace? Generosity towards me. Giving is not duty in the New Testament. Giving is not a guilt thing. It's a grace thing. I'm responding. It's a way to say thank you to God for his generosity. Does my giving reflect God's generosity sacrifice towards me? And finally, do I serve others as worship of God? To the degree we serve others for the approval of others we're just marching towards disappointment right but if we serve others for the approval of God it actually becomes worship may God help us grow in our priority of worship let's pray Father we are very imperfect uh, fault filled worshipers we see our own inadequacies and know that uh, so many things distract, so many things come between and before you. I pray, Lord, you would help restart our practices of worship. And if we have practices that have become stale, I pray that you would um, awaken and enliven our connection, our communication that we would truly listen to you when we see or read or hear your word, that we would truly understand you here as we pray. May we be worshipers, and then, Lord, I know that you can uh, encourage us on this journey. I pray that our, our true goal, our destination, 
along this life's journey will be a path, a life, a practice, a lifestyle of worship for you. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.